When you think about organized crime, it's not intuitive that Africa would be a focus. But from the illegal wildlife trade, to human smuggling and oil theft, to blood diamonds, piracy and drug smuggling, Africa is increasingly becoming webbed into the global illicit economy. In this new podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we not only examine the flows of illicit commodities, but also look at the enabling environment that has made Africa vulnerable to the growth of organized crime. With more than 150 members and contacts across the continent, this podcast provides an unparalleled look at the drivers of Africa's illicit economy. In each installment, we focus on a specific region of the continent covered by the GI's observatories. This is the fourth episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. This week, we're in East and Southern Africa. As some countries around the world chart a decline in coronavirus cases, the pandemic is accelerating in most parts of Africa leaving behind a trail of economic devastation. According to the United Nations, the ripple effects from the COVID-19 pandemic are already leading to exchange rate depreciations and a projected decline in Africa's GDP. But what about the illicit economy? Has the underworld been disrupted by COVID-19? Or have the continent's illegal networks found ways to adapt, improvise and overcome? This week, we look at the emergence of novel illicit economies during the COVID-19 pandemic and the expansion of existing ones. From Somalia, where international medical donations have been misappropriated by corrupt officials and how the country's ban on cut, a narcotic leaf, has led to the emergence of a contraband industry to South Africa, where a tobacco ban is expanding the horizons for profit from illicit trading. Somalia is one of the least equipped countries in the world to deal with an outbreak of an infectious disease. The country is in its fourth decade of civil war and its 14th year of a deadly Islamist insurgency. The public health system is virtually non-existent and the government is plagued by endemic corruption. It's no surprise then that soon after the country reported its first COVID case on March 16th, Somalia received unprecedented international support from Qatar and Turkey to philanthropic foundations, medical supplies, equipment and funds arrived from far and wide. These life-saving donations, however, did not always fulfill their intended purpose. Jay Bahada is a journalist and author of The Pirates of Somalia. Somalia has been one of the primary recipients of a lot of donor-related aid to COVID, including private aid from the Jack Ma Foundation. The founder of Alibaba has been conducting what we term in the risk bulletin as face mask diplomacy. And essentially the problem is that they essentially don't have a public health care system. So they don't have the institutions and mechanisms to distribute this material. As a result, a lot of this material, as we document in the risk bulletin, is being diverted to private pharmacies. In Somalia, the coronavirus pandemic has changed patterns of public corruption, as state agents have sought to take advantage of the crisis for personal gain. 
Abdulaziz Bilo Ali is a Somali-based journalist and television correspondent. The situation is quite complicated in Somalia, especially with coronavirus. The only government institution that is functioning 100% complete according to the World Health Organization standards is in Mogadishu. That is the Dimartino Hospital. It's the sole treatment unit for COVID-19. And until recently, it lacked all the necessary apparatus, including ventilators that are quite vital. But that has been addressed. There are quite a number of ventilators that are bought by the government in Somalia. Some were donated by the Turkish government and others by the World Health Organization. Can you paint a picture of Somalia's healthcare system? Is what you've described the condition of the system under normal conditions? The situation is quite alarming in Somalia not just for COVID-19, but even for normal health conditions. Apart from the capital, Mogadishu, where we see a lot of hospitals being equipped, in remote areas, it's quite complicated. People die of the mildest symptoms of any other disease and not just COVID-19. It's not a sight to behold, but we have private institutions that are popping up and we have some hospitals in the capital, Mogadishu, that are run by charity organizations. Those are some of the hospitals that many people tend to go, but public institutions like the hospitals that are run by the government, it's quite alarming. Nobody wants to be treated in all these hospitals. You mentioned that DiMartino is where COVID cases are going and that this hospital has been a major recipient of ventilators and other medical essentials from external donors. These donations, though, have been at the heart of a massive investigation into fraud at the Ministry of Health that drew public attention in April. What did this investigation reveal about the scale of corruption within the health ministry? The country is ranked among the most corrupt nations on earth, but the COVID-19 issue has then put Somalia on the limelight again. People are losing lives. Money was being looted out. The Department of Finance of the Ministry of Health were took to task to explain where the money went. And when the government failed to understand where the money went, two officials, that is the Director General of the Ministry of Health, he was arrested on corruption charges, as well as the director of finance of the Ministry of Health. That is one of the biggest setbacks that hit the Somali healthcare system, especially now the country is facing more than 3,000 cases. Then corruption in the health sector is quite alarming and it triggered a lot of setback even from the international community who wanted response on the aid that they've channeled to the country that it should be used in the right way. Were any officials prosecuted for this theft? The Banadi Regional Court in Mogadishu listened to the oral hearing of the case between the Ministry of Health officials and the government of uh, Somalia. Those are two individuals who were arrested on corruption charges. They were arrested in the month of April and the case is being heard still in the Bernadette Regional Court. On the 14th of July 2020, the Ministry of Finance presented its evidence against the two officials and the Somali government is awaiting the final verdict from the court on whether these two individuals should be tried on corruption charges. But the amount of money that is missing has not yet been uh, established, but uh, definitely with the court case still on, the people of Somalia who are demanding answers will be able to know just how extent to the corruption implication went in the Ministry of Health. Has the investigation revealed new insight as to how these goods are misappropriated? The interesting part is uh, if you go to the market in Mogadishu, you will find that uh, many things that were brought in from Turkey, for instance, some of the equipments that was provided by Jack Ma especially were found in the market in Mogadishu as well as in many other parts of the country. This is what uh, triggered uh, the government to launch formal investigation 
on how this aid managed to get out of a warehouse that is run by the government and into the market. So the Somali government is also investigating funds that have went missing. They have not established the exact amount, but it is being said that thousands of dollars were looted from the state coffers. And this is money that was meant to go to the remote regions to assist local hospitals with their personal protective equipment, masks, and to be able to contain the situation so that coronavirus doesn't claim more lives. Now that two of the key figures behind this corruption scheme have been arrested, has the misappropriation of donated goods ended? Or is there evidence to suggest that this kind of activity is still continuing? Well, the Office of the Prime Minister has tried its best to show the Somali public that it's on top of the game. And they've been holding regular press conferences to explain that today there was an aid shipment to the state of Puntland. It contained drugs, it contained personal protective equipment, it contained some other ventilators machine and other vital stuff to support hospitals that are fighting corona. It also holds press conferences to explain the number of cases that have been linked to COVID-19 in any other region and what sort of measure that they've put in place in all these areas. They've also been providing video evidence of aid that is being sent to the regions and officials in those areas have been attesting that indeed the government has delivered all this aid. So since these cases were taken over by the Prime Minister's office, there seems to be change on the ground in terms of the way management of coronavirus funds and aid and equipment was being channeled, but not through the Ministry of Health. Now it's the office of the Prime Minister, the Directorate of the COVID-19 Task Force that is dealing with this issue. And it has been more transparent compared to the Ministry of Health. Has this change on the ground fostered a sense of hope that this might be a significant step towards eradicating rampant corruption in the country? That is a general feeling on the ground because people say at a time when people are losing lives and people's lives are at risk, the funds that are meant to support these victims should not be stolen. And that's why all eyes are on the Banerjee Regional Court. This is in Mogadishu that is set to issue a verdict on the individuals who are tasked with protecting lives instead of looting these funds. So all eyes are on the ground and it is expected that once the court gives the verdict, this will be a game changer in the fight against corruption because under the current government that has been in office for close to three years, there seems to be more support and more fight against corruption. And that's why the Somali government has in recent years received the backing of the international creditors. They've begun channeling funds directly to the Somali government. And that's why Somalia will try its level best to show the confidence of the donors that it is on top of this game and it is going to bring to book the directors and any other official who is linked with the misappropriation of funds for COVID-19. Abdulaziz Bilo Ali is a Somali-based journalist and television correspondent. In Somalia, before the coronavirus pandemic, it was not uncommon to see groups of men casually chewing the leaves of a red-stemmed plant. Khat, as it's known in Somalia, is chewed for its narcotic effects by about 70% of the country's adult male population. But as COVID-19 began to spread around the world, Somalia's federal government shut down its airspace, thus halting imports of the popular plant. This upset consumers in Somalia, while also damaging the financial prospects of cut farmers and traders in neighboring Kenya, the biggest supplier of the plant. Here's Jay Bahadur again. 
The central and southern part of the country almost exclusively consumes Kenyan cot, which is brought in by air, as opposed to Ethiopian cot, which is generally brought in by road. But the Kenyan cot is considered of a much higher quality and usually fetches a little higher price. There's about 50 tons of Kenyan cot that comes in to Somalia every day. The unintended consequence of the ban has been the development of a contraband market between the two countries. Abdulaziz Bilo Ali weighs in on the cat ban's effects in Somalia. The smuggled cat that comes from Kenya and Ethiopia by sea and by land sometimes has been quite costly. It's going for almost three times the amount. That's up to 60 US dollars. That restricts the number of people who can be able to purchase it. It also had some serious implications because millions of dollars each year used to go into this industry. People's livelihood depended on this industry. We have thousands of people who trade in this commodity. So it was a big blow for them economically. They've been forced to shift entirely their profession. Many who used to trade in this business had no option but to go into various other forms of businesses because they saw no chance that the government will lift the lockdown and the restriction on the cart business. We also know that airline companies used to benefit from this trade. We have almost 10 flights that come into Mogadishu every day and many other flights that go throughout all the cities in Somalia. How much longer do you think Somalia can afford to maintain this ban, considering that both the region of Puntland in northeastern Somalia and the self-declared state of Somaliland have ended it? The region in Somaliland has been under pressure from its locals. They share a border with Ethiopia where the bringing in of cart is very easy by car. Unlike in Mogadishu where cart has to come by air always to Mogadishu unless it's smuggled through the port of Kismayo all the way by boat and then it is brought all the way to Mogadishu. So it's very hard to limit. So regardless of this ban, the cut business still thrives in Somalia, even though it is at a very minimal level. But the government of Somalia insists that until all the restrictions and all the health concerns have been checked and verified, cut ban will still remain in effect. While the cut ban has had mixed effects in Somalia, it's been almost all bad for farmers in Kenya, where the plant is known as Miram. Exports of the plant generate around $230 million a year for the Kenyan economy. Mira is primarily grown in central Kenya's Meru County, but industries and roads have developed as far as Marsabit in the north around the trade of the plant. The cessation of trade has had a widespread impact. Dale Ibrahim is a writer based in Marsabit, Kenya. The whole spectrum of players in this, there's the farmers in Meru, in places like Marsabit, then there's the distribution, it employs, and then you have pickers who pick the mirror, then there are the distribution system, the drivers, the transport owners, and then at the end of it all, you have people who distribute the mirror. So these are like women who open shops, they sell them from the shops, they prepare tea, Things that are needed in the consumption of Mira, really. There's all these people get affected when a Mira ban happens. We've seen protests before in places like Meru and Somalia has banned the importation of Mira. Somali authorities have further justified the cut ban by highlighting its potential as a vector for the spread of COVID-19. They point to the social manner in which it's consumed and the fact that the leaf is picked, packed and transported by hand. Are there similar concerns in Kenya? The problem with Northern Kenya and COVID-19 has been that we've seen at least two governors banning the consumption of Mirai in Mandera and in Wajia. It caused a lot of protests. There was running battles with the police burning of tires from women who rely on Mirai consumption. In Isiolo, both Wajia and Mandera too. 
So these three counties really were affected by the few days Mirawa was burnt. So basically the police stopped the Mirawa entry into the town, but also like women selling Mirawa were forbidden from doing so. So and it caused a lot of problems. Uh, it wasn't really legal for governors to ban Mirawa. There's no component within the law which allows them to do that, but it was a very spontaneous reaction to fear caused by COVID-19. Eventually, everything went back to normal. The county commissioner in Isiolo, for example, advising consumers to wash their mirror before they eat them or people being asked to maintain social distances even when they do the consumption. But also the president himself classified mirrors as an essential goods along with vegetables. So that eased a lot of the anxiety in the distribution system and employment of people. The bigger effect has been from the Oromo protest, which has hampered, you know, the transportation of Mira from the Ethiopian highlands towards the southern area. That has affected the distribution system, but not COVID-19. Even when Ethiopia closed down the border, we've seen border borders and, you know, those motorcycles using illegal routes to transport Mira still. What, in your view, are the diplomatic implications of the cat ban on Kenya and Somalia? It is a big issue. It has a big implication on both countries' relationship. The relationship between Kenya and Somalia is a bit strained as a result of the oil blocks in Lamu, the Al-Shabaab issue. Kenyans will pressure their governments to strengthen out relationship between the two countries. So the pressure is not really at a higher political government level, but really at the consumer level and at the producer level. That was writer Dale Abraham, based in Marsabit, Kenya. In March this year, South Africa adopted some of the harshest restrictions to combat the spread of COVID-19. Among them, a complete ban on tobacco products. The alleged susceptibility of smokers to COVID-19 was cited as the primary rationale for the ban. But even so, smokers are still getting their fix. Let's hear from Jay Bahadur again. It's not surprising that gangs that deal in drugs are also benefiting from the tobacco ban. One gang member we interviewed suggested that cigarettes were actually more profitable than amphetamines now. When you have an illicit market that's been created for a product that's much more widespread and arguably more addictive than most illegal drugs, I think it's not surprising that gangs have got involved. The ban on cigarettes has perversely expanded the market for the illicit economy. Talita Snickers is an illicit trade expert, former tax lawyer for the South African Revenue Services, known as SARS, and author of Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits. Tobacco smuggling goes back a good four centuries. When we look at South Africa in particular, around 2013, we know that the prevalence was sitting at around 26% of the market that was illicit. By 2018, the illicit market size was sitting at around 35%. And we saw a 26% reduction in the tax that was declared. What's really concerning is that under the current ban, effectively, 100% of tobacco sales are illicit. Now, we know that traditionally, this illicit market in South Africa was largely controlled by tobacco and cigarettes that was being smuggled in from Zimbabwe. But what we see is that increasingly local players are gaining more market share in the illicit market itself. Talita, let's take a closer look at the players in this illicit market. Who are the major producers of cigarettes in South Africa? 
Well, I think what's important to understand when we look at the way the South African market works is that there are essentially three categories of tobacco products or tobacco manufacturers that we need to look at. The first one would be the large listed multinational companies. So they would be companies like British American Tobacco, Japan Tobacco and Philip Morris. And before the lockdown, BAT was controlling around 74% of the local legal market. Then we have a second category, which would be what we call low-cost manufacturers. And typically in a country like South Africa, here we're talking about companies like Gold Leaf Tobacco or Carnalinx Tobacco, who are licensed legal tobacco manufacturers. You know, SARS know about them, they pay tax, and they make what they call value brands. And then there's a third group, fly-by-night manufacturers, who make illicit cigarettes specifically for the purpose of supplying the illicit market. Do cigarettes in all three categories end up on the illicit market? If we look at the low-cost value brand manufacturers in South Africa, we also know that after the lockdown, the trade appears to be controlled largely by gold leaf tobacco, which manufactures a brand called Shark. And in the current lockdown ban state, this sharp packs make up around 12% of the illicit market. And then there's another company called Best Tobacco Company, and they manufacture a brand called Caesar, which makes up about 8% of the current illicit market. And then there are some of the other smaller low-cost manufacturers whose brands are also featuring on the illicit market as we speak. So you look at Carnalinx, which has maybe a 3% share of the illicit market, Remington Gold, which is made by Pacific Cigarette Company, which has about 2% of the illicit market. And then um, the Savannah brand, which is produced by Gold Leaf Tobacco. And they currently have just a little below 3% of the illicit market. But I think what's really interesting when we look at the current market share of the illicit brands, what's really interesting is that 24% of the surveyed smokers indicate that they are still buying bat branded cigarette packs. So it's not just the small low-cost manufacturers whose products are ending up on the illicit market. It's very much also the products of the larger multinational companies. Well, the essential subject of your book, Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits, is that big tobacco firms, these listed legitimate companies, are involved in the smuggling of their own product. Why would they choose to participate in the illicit market? When I started toying with the idea of writing this book, almost everyone I spoke to, you know, met the idea that a large listed company would smuggle its own products with absolute incredulity. Why would a listed company smuggle its own packs and why would they potentially put their reputations at risk by doing so? But as it turns out, there's actually ample evidence of criminality almost being embedded in the DNA of the tobacco industry in general and of the big tobacco companies in particular. Why would they do it? Well, the first reason is because they make the same amount of profit on an illicit pack as they do on a smuggled pack. So it simply almost effectively doubles the market that they can reach. They can sell their expensive packs to people who can afford it and they can sell their brands at a cheaper price to people who cannot afford premium brands. And so it effectively simply opens up two markets for them. But also it gives them access to markets that would otherwise be closed to them. So in some countries where smoking is completely forbidden, for instance, there's a very nice bat document where they note how they distribute cigarettes in black plastic bags because tobacco trade is forbidden in Somalia under Al-Shabaab. 
Or it could also be that they smuggle because the import duties or the import licenses are so prohibitively expensive that they wouldn't be able to compete with local manufacturers. So how do traders smuggle cigarettes in South Africa? Who do they work with and how do they manage to evade authorities? The scheme is very simple. You declare fewer packs to the taxman than you actually make, or you pretend that the packs were exported, but you actually offer them for sale on the local market. And in a country like South Africa, both of those schemes are really easy to get away with. Because firstly, SARS actually has relatively poor production control measures at cigarette factories. So we are reliant on the cigarette manufacturers to declare how many cigarettes they produced. Second part of the problem is that SARS and South Africa between them have not introduced any form of traceability for cigarette packs. So for instance, under the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, SARS is obliged to introduce what we call tax stamps or secure marks onto cigarette packs. So that if you as a customs officer or a policeman find a pack on the market, you can actually firstly immediately see whether the tax has been paid on that pack or not. And secondly, you can trace a particular pack back to the specific manufacturer that made the pack. SARS has been saying since 2007 that they would introduce these secure marks. To date, that hasn't happened. So that's part of the big reason why tobacco manufacturers get away with it. And is there evidence of corruption as well? The tobacco industry is extremely wise in terms of controlling the narrative and controlling the rhetoric that we read in the media. And by doing so, they end up controlling the decisions that our policymakers take. And they end up through things like memorandums of understanding with law enforcement agencies. They control where law enforcement agencies look. They control who the law enforcement agencies investigate. They very much control what legislation gets promulgated. And to a large extent, the tobacco industry certainly has friends in high places. In South Africa, for instance, we can draw very clear lines between different tobacco manufacturers and their political patrons. That patronage means that I think they end up getting away with more than they should. Talita, how has the COVID-19 pandemic disrupted the way in which cigarettes are smuggled? When you consider what's happened to the labor market or transportation, has it gotten harder or easier for tobacco manufacturers to get their products to the market illegally? On some level, clearly some changes would have been necessary. But when you trawl through a lot of the industry-generated documents, how a lot of the smuggling or supplying the illicit market was happening was that someone would drive to a cigarette factory in a sedan or maybe in a bucky or a pickup or something and collect small consignments. That kind of distribution is certainly still happening. I think what we're seeing more of is smuggled imports from unknown brands, unknown manufacturers. That certainly has increased. But what definitely has changed, which is quite shocking, is if you look at the trade data in terms of imports and exports, during May, South African tobacco manufacturers exported more cigarettes to Namibia than Namibians smoke in a year. The only reason they would have done so was because that 
creates a cache. It creates a nice base where you can store your cigarettes and then you can smuggle them back into the country, duty-free, tax-free. The fact that we've seen this great spike in exports from South Africa, it's the single biggest export month since 2017. The fact that they simply started exporting in huge volumes suggests that those exports are actually being used as a source for the domestic illicit market. Well, it's been nearly four months since South Africa banned cigarettes for public health reasons. Has the ban had the desired effect? Has it stopped people from smoking? If we look at data from two perspectives, the first one is the study that Professor Kornay van Walbeek and his team did back in May, which showed that 16% of smokers said that they had quit. 12% of them said that they intended to start smoking again after the ban is lifted. But also when we look at comments in social media, it's very evident that very few smokers have in fact stopped smoking. And even if a significant percentage of smokers had indeed stopped smoking, I think there's no scientifically robust evidence pointing to it having made any significant difference to the trajectory of COVID-19 in South Africa. Are you concerned that the longer this ban persists, the greater the risk that the illicit trade will become even more entrenched in South Africa? Absolutely. I think there are two significant factors at play that that worry me. The first one is that the illicit trade has gained a foothold. You know, you just have to look on social media that the number of tobacco manufacturers and even small players who are now creating Facebook pages where they sell, they call it rat poison or they call it compost or different things that they are for sale. And increasingly what we're seeing is that consumers have established a direct line to criminals kind of supply would be difficult to curb. So the first challenging issue to my mind is the fact that in any society, I think once illicit trade has gotten a foothold, it's extremely difficult to claw back the difference. But I think in South Africa, there's also another dynamic that's really worrying. And that is that there's a real anger towards government in terms of how it's handled its response to the pandemic on the one hand, but also in terms of broader issues around state capture, state corruption. In the past year or so, we see people have been speaking about a possible tax revolt. People have been speaking about taxpayers simply refusing to comply with their obligations. What you see is a convergence between these two issues where smoking taxpayers are, as a matter of principle, going to choose to support the illicit trade as a way of protesting against government taxes. If you're a salaried employee, you don't have many opportunities to cheat on your taxes. But if you're a smoker, you now have a practical option of actually buying from a criminal. And I think because of this disillusionment with government, many South Africans may very well choose to support the illicit trade. That was Talita Snickers, an illicit trade expert, former tax lawyer for the South African Revenue Services and author of Dirty Tobacco, Spies, Lies and Mega Profits. That's it for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A big thank you to Abdulaziz Bilo Ali, Dale Abraham, Talita Snickers and Jay Bahadur. Next week, we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in North Africa and the Sahel. To learn more about the topics covered in this episode, head over to the GI's website, www.globalinitiative.net, 
and check out the Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in East and Southern Africa, Risk Bulletin. While you're there, feel free to check out some of the GI's other publications. There's a never-ending source of content that is sure to pique your interest. You can also find last week's podcast on licit economy smuggling in the Maghreb and Sahel. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening. During the 21st century, thousands of criminal assassinations have occurred worldwide. They produce a butterfly effect of trauma locally, nationally, regionally and globally. Despite these efforts to silence, criminal assassinations can be a source of hope and community resilience. He had a fire in him. He couldn't stand corruption and he wouldn't stop after exposing it. She was such a force of nature that when I first met her, I came away a bit shaken, a bit intimidated. He was a very pleasant, modest and humble person who dreamt about a time when all criminals would pay for their deeds. She taught us the fear paralyzed actions of the people. We will never give up, even if we got killed, even if they murder us. They didn't die. They multiplied. Thousands of brave souls have paid with their lives because they refused to tolerate criminal governance. In 2019, the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime commissioned approximately 50 profiles of persons assassinated across the world under the Faces of Assassination Project. These profiles highlight places where organized crime has permeated political, cultural and economic sectors of society. Check out our website and join the campaign.